Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. Now hitting your ears is episode XXI, the Great Fire of Rome in 64 CE. Now that Emperor Nero is a little bit older and coming out of the shadows of his mother Agrippina the Younger, he's starting to show a bit of his true colours. This was all put to test in 64 CE, when a great fire burnt down most of Rome. What caused the fire and how Nero reacted is under a lot of academic debate, and that has a big effect on how we remember Nero. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Rome was always a fire hazard. The famous fire is the one that happens under Nero in 64, but there was fire all the time in Rome. It was just endemic because all the buildings were so close together. They were really badly designed in terms of fire prevention. We'd be horrified. And they built upwards because, you know, there's not a lot of land. Rome's built on seven hills and it's fairly enclosed. If you've been there, you can walk around basically the whole city. It's not huge. And there are places, especially the poorer regions, where there are just these kind of slum apartment blocks built very close together. Roads between them aren't very wide. So if one building catches fire, there's really no fire break. It can get to the next one. And they also build up, not skyscraper, up, obviously, but say four stories. And if you're on the top story, then you're probably not going to survive in a fire. So the top story that you might think of as the penthouse is actually the cheapest and lousiest place to be. You want to be on the ground floor and that will cost you more money. And there's just lots of these, they call them insulae, which mean islands, island blocks of apartments. Often they'll have, say, cooking facilities in the lower floor. There might be a cafe there. That means there's fire. That means that might get out of control at any point and cause widespread fire. And there's just no regulations and not much of a fire brigade. So it's a kind of perfect storm for fire. So when you say not much of a fire brigade, was there any sort of fire response unit? There's something which Augustus had set up called the Wigilays, uh, the vigilant people who would come and deal with it. But after the Great Fire, that actually gets reformed and, and made sort of more formal. So there is a kind of aftermath response to this fire, which is one of the more devastating ones in 64 CE. Do we know what Roman buildings were made of in this point? Were they highly flammable? Well, bits of them are. All right. So they've got bricks. You go to Rome now and you see there's a brick core to a lot of buildings, but there's a lot of wood and, you know, terraces and balconies and you might not have the best building standards, so things will collapse easily. So there's lots of differing accounts for how the Great Fire started. What do we think might have happened? What's the possibilities? Well, it was probably accidental, because that's not unlikely. But by this point, Nero's not very popular, so there are lots of rumours that Nero's behind the Great Fire, that he instigated it because he's crazy or because he wants to build a new city on his own model so he has to get rid of the the old one and there's a rumor that he's going to rename Rome as Neropolis the city of Nero 
And the rumour that apparently Nero was quite happy to work with was that it had been burnt down by the Christians. So there are lots of kind of conspiracy theories about how the fire starts. There's this theory as well and a, a quite lasting image that he played his fiddle while Rome burnt or sang a song of some sort. What's the story behind that or is, is it just a story? There is a rumour reported that he was playing music and watching. This is part of the, you know, he wanted the city to burn mm. and therefore he was very happy to be watching it from the palace. He didn't play the fiddle because there were no fiddles. He played a lyre then. Possibly the lyre. This probably arises out of the fact that Nero is known for being very interested in music and acting. He wanted to be on the stage, which should have been a lowly activity. So it's probably bringing together two, two possible negatives about Nero, that he might have started this fire, which would be a terrible thing to do, Nero the arsonist, and that he's more interested in music and artsy stuff than the military and ruling and politics. So it's a kind of convenient conflation of these two bad sides of Nero that he receives lots of bad PR for. There's also an account that he wasn't even in Rome, though, isn't there? Yeah, that he might have been uh, elsewhere in Antium at the time, which is quite possible. You know, he didn't spend all his time in Rome. We don't know whether that's true and that it happened in his absence and then he was blamed by some people for it. So what was the rationale behind the Christians possibly starting the fire? Well, this is rumoured in Tacitus... And the idea in Tacitus is that he needs a scapegoat, that he is behind this fire, or he's certainly being blamed for it. And Tacitus basically mentions this pretty much in one throwaway line, that it might have been the Christians. And this has been kind of taken up with both hands and used to demonize Nero, basically, by Christian sources forever after, that he blamed the Christians for something they hadn't done, and then he basically went on a purge, that he starts one of the great persecutions of the Christians. You have to be very careful with this. I think the fact that it is pretty much a throwaway line in Tacitus should guide us to the fact that the Christians are not very prominent at this point. So it's not like taking on the enemy and saying, ah, oh, you've done something bad, and that's a way of kind of undermining them. Nero doesn't really need to undermine the, the Christians. They're not very powerful. They're just one of many groups that would have been seen as criminal because they met in secret, because they met at all. The Romans regard meetings, gatherings of more than a few people as a bit suspect. Later on, it becomes clear that they also won't acknowledge deified emperors as gods because they're monotheistic. So that's a kind of extra layer of problems. But at this time, they might have been a convenient scapegoat, but we shouldn't overstate their prominence. We shouldn't see them as somebody who's dangerous to the emperor who might actually be, as it's later presented, particularly in uh, films in the 1950s, things like Quo Vadis, that he realizes that the empire of God is going to take over the empire of Rome. So these, these are people that he has to get rid of at this stage. That's absolutely not true. It's there in Tacitus, and Tacitus is writing, we shouldn't forget, in the early 2nd century, at a time when the Christians were starting to be seen as, as not a big problem, but, you know, one of those problematic sects that needed to be kept in control. So I think this is very much a 2nd century kind of reading back onto the Great Fire, 
and a sort of conspiracy theory that then gets blown more and more out of proportion. So we know that the fire burnt for six days. How much do we know about the extent of its damage? It destroyed a lot of Rome. Out of the 14 zones that Augustus divided the city into, it destroyed 10 of the zones. Wow. Some some much more thoroughly than others, but yeah. certainly 10 of them were affected. So this is why it's the Great Fire as opposed to all of the others. That, you know, There'll be another one in the 80s uh, CE. But it was very, very destructive. It had burned for days and... You can sort of see why there is this rumour that Nero is behind it because it does give him a clean sheet with rebuilding the city. But one thing that a lot of the accounts seem to agree on is that he did have a big part in recovery from the fire. Absolutely, and there are sort of two sides to this. One of them, which is not always mentioned and not played up quite so much in the ancient sources, is that he did put a lot of money and effort into rebuilding the city for the ordinary people. So rebuilding their homes and putting in standards so that they were built to to withstand another fire, at least have a better chance of withstanding it. And he brings in these regulations and uh, kind of beefs up the, the fire brigade. You know, you don't often think of Nero as being someone who takes the more mundane aspects of being emperor seriously, that he actually is in command. But this is one area where he actually did take an interest and he put, mo- he put his money where his mouth was and he helped people out by rebuilding the city. Speaking of money where the mouth was, he he also bought them corn and and put them up, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He made sure that there was food and shelter during this time, the things that we still need to do if there's some kind of devastation like that. The other side of it, though, was that he built himself a really magnificent house, and the word house doesn't really do it justice. He was already building himself a house, which burnt down in the fire. The house he was building we call the Domus Transitoria, which means the the house that runs between because it joined together two of the hills of Rome. So that's pretty big. And even though most of it burned, there are little bits of it left and you can actually go and you can see some of the wall painting if it's open and it's pretty magnificent. However, he replaces this with the golden house, the Domus Aurea, which is even bigger and joins together three hills of Rome. Mm. it's not really a house it's more of a country villa which is great and something you might have as an emperor as a roman aristocrat but you can't normally have it right in the center of rome dominating the whole of rome well you can now but that would have <laughs> that would have given a lot of credence to the thought that he set the fire himself equally he's probably just making the most of a bad situation exactly he was already building a really magnificent house and now it becomes now that a lot of the houses have been cleared away Mm. a lot of the buildings that might have been in the way he can make it bigger you know he can have a lake and he can have a very strangely designed villa you know you think of something kind of stately block but it's not like that at all from the excavations or from the survey which shows us one wing of this house it's sort of Lots of weird, strange, diagonal and curved lines. It's not regular in mm. any way. It's It sort of goes out in weird tangents. And it was sort of the latest 
very chic design, avant-garde, I think we'd call it these days, especially when you think the Romans tend to have angular structures. You think of the Romans, you think of straight roads that are at angles to each other. This is Nero doing completely the opposite. He's going for something that's, that's much less normal in Roman society. And, of course, it will also have the best and most beautiful wall paintings. It had a domed room that seemed to show the constellations on it, a dining room, which we think is a room that you can go into when it's open and when it's safe, which is near the, the current Colosseum. And indeed, the current Colosseum is where his lake was. A lot of the later buildings built by emperors who come after Nero are basically just taking bits of the golden house and rebuilding them for their own purpose. And one of their own purposes is to say, we're not Nero. We're rebuilding this not as our personal homes, but as as an amphitheater for the people. What a surprise. Mm. So the Golden House sort of lives on. Most of it is gone, but it lives on in other structures because emperors take it on. They co-opt it and make it their own. But the house itself was not finished at Nero's death. It was finished enough for him to move into, and he's famously supposed to have said, now I can finally live like a human. So now I can finally be a human uh, being. I, I was living in this shoddy old uh, shed me, before. Let me play my liar for him. <laughs> <laughs> now, if true, and again, it's the kind of thing that could be apocryphal, but either way, it sums up the attitude to Nero, that he's, one, he's very overdramatic, and two, he thinks that's the, the kind of basic normality that he needs to live, mm. all right? That this house that nobody can imagine, no one's had anything like it before. It's much more like the palace of a king, and that's kind of his base. It shows his disconnect from reality, I suppose. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome, If you like this podcast, you can find it on iTunes, where you can subscribe, leave a review, and please tell your friends about it. You can find us on social media. We are both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. Emperors of Rome is also on Facebook, so please come there, give us a bit of a like, and join in a conversation about this very episode. Keep an ear out for the next episode of Emperors of Rome, in which we have a look at one of Nero's greatest influences. Until then, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.